Hello and welcome to an episode of Good Works in the Heartland. I am Lori Kessinger, the Outreach Coordinator for the Audio Reader Network, and today we have Will Averill of the Willow Domestic Violence Center. Will, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your organization. Sure. Um, My name, as you said, is Will Averill. I'm the Director of Communications for the Willow Domestic Violence Center. Uh, I have been Director of Communications for three years now. Just had my, my third year anniversary, so that's very exciting. The Willow is a shelter support and services center for survivors of domestic violence and human trafficking uh, in Douglas, Franklin, and Jefferson County. Um, We provide a 30-day, 28-bed emergency shelter um, that is available through our 24-hour crisis hotline uh, for those who are in immediate danger of domestic violence. And in addition to that, for those who may not need shelter, we provide individual advocacy, court services, uh, referrals, and um, the ability to get assistance with with funds if people need them for things like paying utility bills or replacing lost documentation, uh, anything of that nature. We can certainly help out those in the community who aren't in need of shelter but may need those additional services. Uh, Additionally, we have a transitional housing program for folks who are not in immediate danger but trying to rebuild new lives. Um, This offers a low-cost, affordable housing rental rate for uh, survivors for one to two years so they can kind of get back on their feet with assistance from a case manager. Uh, We are in partnership with the KU Endowment and Tenants to Homeowners on that project, so it's a very exciting partnership because it brings together different uh, community organizations. in addition to that, we have recently started a, a foster a, a support transition position, which is basically helping to support those kiddos who are coming out of foster care um, into the community, providing support networks, because that can be a very vulnerable time. So that would be like the young adults when they're aging out of foster care? When they're aging out of foster care, um, it can be a very vulnerable time for people who don't have any resources. So we're working, uh, that person facilitates a support group and they develop programs to get folks uh, who are in that situation assistance with employment and uh, educational resources. So that kind of ties into a question I did have. Domestic violence, of course, you think of primarily for, for women, mm-hmm. but your services are available to to both men and women um, and cover pretty much a broader range of the community than just people that are in direct crisis, as you said. That, got some support. Yes, yeah, and I, th- I think those are two really important points and two things that we um, kind of constantly um, come up against. People uh, remember it as the Willow's been around for a while, since 1976. Uh, it was only renamed the Willow in 2010, before that, it was Women Transitional Care Services, um, and it was referred to colloquially as a battered women's shelter. That was the the language of the 80s. Right. Um, and we've moved away from that since then, and current statistics show that one in three men, and or sorry, one in three women and one in four men will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. 30 to 50% of trans and non-binary folks will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. So we didn't feel that we were being able to provide service to all survivors, which is our goal, without providing services to um, those groups, to, to, to groups that weren't traditionally considered uh, part of the, you know, sort of women's shelter model. 
Right, right. Yeah. But it's it's been an interesting process. They, you know, there were there were a lot of concerns surrounding having um, men and women in the shelter together. Uh, it has not proved to be a problem. Um, it's one of those situations where I think people who are um, in crisis tend to understand uh, each other in a, in a way that that um, forms quick bonds and and they work together um, to help each other out. It's a twenty eight bed shelter. Is it full a lot? I mean, what is your what is your capacity and and, you know, what are like, what are some of the numbers? That sure, you sure. Um, well, last year we provided 6,999 nights of safe rest, and that's one person in, per bed per night sort of count. Um, what that roughly works into is uh, we assisted approximately 250 survivors and their children. And that's just in the in the shelter uh, shelter side alone. We are generally, you know, at least two thirds full all of the time. Right now, we ha- we are currently, I believe, full, or we have been just recently, as of about a week ago, full. So, um, one thing that we're working on right now is a move to what's called a low barrier model of. Um, of, of being trauma informed with our with our advocacy and low barrier basically addresses a problem in shelter situations um, that was what was kind of happening was folks were coming from one sort of situation where abuse being all about power and control there were these these set of rules of things you could and couldn't do um, and then they were coming to the shelter and finding in the shelter the setup was essentially. Uh, the same and that there were a set of rules that they were expected to adhere to. And these rules were, you know, uh, helpful for some people, but could be very, very, uh, could be, could be huge barriers for other people. Um, and in, in addition, the way in which we respond to those in crisis, we're an empowerment based agency and the way in which we respond to those in crisis can really make a difference in how they proceed through with that journey and how they're, you know, how they're able to adapt um, their behavior years accordingly so um what the what the low barrier model does is it looks at behavior that would previously be considered you know sort of acting out or rule breaking as adaptive behavior um which which people have been utilizing in order to survive and so rather than being like you know three strikes and you're out we have a conversation about why these behaviors are occurring what other behaviors might be applicable here or could be more positive uh, and how we're all going to work together in a group environment it takes more conversation it takes more training it takes more in-depth advocacy uh, but it is a, a lot more effective and has been um, really a, a good service for us. But as part of that, we want to extend these relationships into a 90-day model rather than a 30-day model. So we're working towards offering 90-day stays wow. because 30 days is very little barely, time. Yeah, barely yeah. enough to, to make any make any inroads. Now, some, if people yeah. are in your transitional or in your in your shelter. Um, and they leave after the 30 days, they're still able to go to your support groups and, and receive. They don't have to be living there in order to get help. From absolutely. Willow. Absolutely. Our, our, we have a whole section of community advocacy that specifically works with with folks who aren't in shelter but are in our services. Um, those, you know, there's so many different outcomes and so many different needs that much of what they do is just individual meetings and helping people to safety plan to make sure that they're as safe as possible if their abuser is not in jail, if their abuser is out um, looking for educational opportunities, assisting with, like, as I said, bills and utilities, things that can be very difficult much of the time 
part of abuse is uh, economic abuse is withholding money, not letting people have credit cards. So you have folks who have, don't have a lot of resources when they come in, some who have no, nothing but the, the clothes on their back when they come in. Um, and that's what we have to, to, to help them first and foremost get, get in a place of safety. But from there, we want to help them be able to move into a place where they're fulfilling what they want, the, the dreams that they want to mm-hmm. fulfill. So our question that we usually ask is, what is your biggest challenge? But with all of those different services, I bet there's more than one challenge. And then, of course, the challenge of all nonprofits is funding. So right, what, are, what are some right. of your, your top challenges? Well, I, I think that, that it's definitely a challenge to address the perception that domestic violence is a private issue. And I think this is one thing that keeps coming up again and again, and I think it's the root of a lot of the other challenges. Um, We do have challenges in maintaining, you know, sort of... we want to maintain great working relationships with our partners, including law enforcement, including the courts. We want to maintain great relationships with um, the organizations that we work with. But much of the time, the challenges come around the fact that the Violence Against Women Act is a federal law, and there are also local laws, and sometimes those two don't necessarily meet. So we're trying to find a middle ground and kind of constantly readdressing that. And part of what would make that easier would be if we started to look at domestic violence, which has traditionally been seen as a thing that happens between two people in a home, usually stereotypically a man and a woman, um, but happens in a private setting. You know, we treat that as a as a private matter when, in fact, these incidents are costing uh, the community not only in, in physical costs but in emotional costs, um, costing you know schools, uh, uh, religious organizations, first responders, uh, employers. You know the, the the scope of what a domestic violence incident costs goes far beyond the um, physical and emotional damage that it caused to that relationship. It goes into the community. It extends into all into all relationships. Really. Exactly. Exactly. That the individuals have. So, so. If we had. So if I had to pick a, okay. a worse problem, I, I or, or a most pressing problem, I think it would be um, to continue to convince the community that domestic violence is a public health issue rather than a private issue. Uh, there's an excellent book by Rachel Louise Snyder called No Visible Bruises, and we're hoping to maybe get her in for Domestic Violence Awareness Month either this October or ne- next October. Uh, and she's a journalist who looked into this very thing and, and presents a very compelling case for the um, for the fact that it is a, the, the, both the personal costs and the narrative stories of people, but also the cost to the community mm-hmm. and, and also stories of, a, of what it costs a, the community. That's a great point. Another, um, I guess, misconception um, is that domestic violence is only happens to people who are poor yes. or uneducated. Yeah, that's... So, that's absolutely one, um, and that's one of the reasons we went away from kind of the the lingo of a of a battered woman shelter because first of all there is the there is the gendering um, of that that statement, but then there's also the idea of a batterer carries with it kind of a stereotype of a you know a, a drunk uh, right. sort of drug abusing um, person who you know comes home from their blue collar job and and beats their partner, and what we actually 
actually see in reality is it happens on all stratas. It happens on all levels. It happens to all people, regardless of race or gender or religion. Um, when you boil it down, it's essentially a pattern of power and control by one person over another person. And that doesn't know socioeconomic bounds. These things can exacerbate an already existing problem, but the power and control is really the issue. Right, right. So do you have an anecdote or story um, of successful situation that you could share? Or? Um, sure. I've got a couple. Obviously, I'm kind of bound by, by confidentiality, right, so right. I can't really reveal uh, any names or give, give too many specifics. Um, but there are a couple that I like to kind of talk about um, – because there, there's one story of a uh, a survivor and uh, her daughter who came into shelter, and they were um, in a she was in a very physically abusive relationship, um, and both the 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 both the survivor and her daughter had had suffered abuse. Um, and over the course of working with them, first in shelter, then they, they went away from shelter, uh, and then they got their own apartment for a while, then they did have to come back to shelter again, um, and then they were back out on their own. Um, and that happened a few times, uh, but in the end, the uh, survivor was able to get her uh, nursing degree, um, and she was able to get a, a, a job that was able to pay enough for um, them to live comfortably. And uh, she most recently wrote, a, uh, about a year ago, wrote us a, a beautiful uh, letter kind of saying that she wouldn't have been able to do any of that if she hadn't had the assistance um, from the Willow, uh, and that her um, daughter was actually uh, raising money for her school to give to uh, another organization. Uh, they, they moved um, right. since okay. then, but to give to a local uh, domestic violence organization because she wanted to provide those services for people who might not have wow. them. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was... very heartwarming. I mean, a lot of trial really cool. and error, you know, a lot of, like you said, back in and out, a lot of attempts, but yeah. ultimately ultimately succeeded. So the, that's wonderful. St statistically, uh, it can be up to seven times before... Uh, a survivor finally leaves their abusive partner, and there's so there are a lot of reasons for that. It's a question we get asked very often, and one that really also drives me crazy um, is the uh, the question of you know why didn't she just leave? And it's usually gendered, so I'm I'm saying it gendered, um, but yeah, why didn't she just leave? And with the question that we really should be asking is why did he think it was okay to hit her, or why did they think that it was okay to hit them? Um, and and you know it's it's all of the reasons that abuse or all of the types of abuse. You know, sometimes it's it's fun. Sometimes they don't have any money. Sometimes there's emotional attachment. Sometimes there's there's love or the hope of redemption of that person. Sometimes there are children involved. Sometimes there's fear. Um, but there are a lot of reasons that that people do, and we accept that as part of the journey. And so, if someone does decide to go back to their uh, their abuser, we help them to safety plan to be as, as safe as possible and to have as many options open as possible should they decide to leave again. And we do open our shelter to folks repeatedly. So if someone has been with us for a stay, provided they left on good terms, they can come back as many times you as say, they oh, need you're, to. You've only been here three times, or you've been here twice, you can't come back right, anymore. Yeah, there's yeah, no, yeah, there's no, like once you're in, you can't come in again. Um, we maintain an, an open door policy. Um, 
so yeah, I mean that's just that that is part of it, and and you know there are times when it's when it's you know pretty heartbreaking because it's you know it's it, you, you somebody's leaving and they're not they're they're going back to a situation where where there is danger and that that but that is part of the process. Do you see situations too though where it's actually been resolved, like the leaving um, encourages the abuser to maybe get help and and. There are I mean, at times. I mean, the situations are all completely so unique. Right. Generally, no. There are occasional uh, situations where that will happen. Um, someone who is willing to attend, say, a batter's intervention program, which they do still call a batter's intervention program, um, but it's basically a program for abusers where they focus on um, accountability and changing negative, you know, sort of uh, thought patterns and, and behavior patterns and looking at, at, you know, what might be inciting the history of abuse in them. Um, is it modeling? Is it a, is it a family thing? That, that sort of thing. Again, it's different reasons for different people. So kind of generalizing here, but the batteries intervention programs can be very effective if people stick with them and are committed to them. Most of the time they're court ordered and people don't, so, right. but, uh, when, when people do, they, they have a good success rate and there have been situations in which that, that has, has worked. But generally what we see is what we call kind of the cycle of abuse is that there's a honeymoon period where there's a reconciliation and, you know, this is, will never happen again. I promise. I promise. And then there's um, the period where sort of, we call it the eggshell period or the, you know, where the tension starts to build the tension building. And, and it's where that the person who's uh, abused is feeling like they're walking on eggshells are feeling like there's something that's not being said and then there's the explosion and that cycle tends to repeat itself over and over again sometimes many times in a day sometimes over a period of years but it's always kind of that same cycle so we're talking with will averill he is the director of communications for the willow domestic violence center go ahead will and tell us how people can contact you both to find out more about your services if they Mm -hmm. want a presentation but how would an individual get in touch with with the willow to find out more, phone number, webpage. Absolutely. Yeah, I would always recommend our, as a first, uh, for whatever your question, um, whether you have a, a question about our services, you wish to donate or you'd like a presentation or you need assistance, um, our 24-hour hotline can cover all of those. And that number is 785-843-3333. And that is staffed 24 hours by um, trained advocates. So uh, it's a great place to start. You can also look on our website, which is w www.willowdvcenter.org. Uh, there's information there under a, a page called Get Involved, which has information on volunteering, donating, um, and and internships if one is interested in, in that. Uh, we also send out a monthly newsletter. So if anyone is interested in that, you can sign up on the website. Uh, that's a great way to get to know kind of who we are and what we do. Um, but yes, we always love uh, to talk to people about what we do. We do all our services are free and confidential. Um, so if people want a presentation, we do presentations on domestic violence, human trafficking, healthy relationships, uh, and many other topics. And we can arrange to do that for um, businesses or workplaces or nonprofit organizations, Rotary clubs, we'll, we'll go to churches. We'll go. Uh, we'll go wherever people are interested in hearing more about it. Um, and that's really a, a great opportunity to kind of get to meet new folks within the community and expand our and start the dialogue yeah. about about the difference between battering and and 
differences that we've just been talking about. What are some of the volunteer opportunities with your organization? Yeah, we do volunteering right now on kind of a project by project basis. Um, we initially were staffed entirely by volunteers and then gradually through the 80s and 90s kind of became more and more staff based. With our low barrier trauma uh, informed training, we uh, generally don't have as many opportunities because the volunteering process and the training process is much more intense. But if somebody is interested in direct service volunteering and working with survivors, that is occasionally an option that'll be available on the website. But we do often have opportunities for shorter term volunteers for individual projects. So, and those again, come up the best way I would say would be to keep an eye on the website or to like our Facebook page or our new get, subscribe for the newsletter. The Cause newsletter. we always post those on, on those, those outlets. Okay. You were talking about um, a capital campaign? Yes. Yeah. We are hoping to open a uh, or a new house, a second house, um, which will provide us um, with much needed additional additional bedrooms because, like I said, we are in capacity the majority of the time. Um, this is something that we, we have been lucky enough to receive a, a relatively large donation that has given us a foundation to purchase the property, um, but we want to ensure that we are able to both uh, both you know purchase it uh, and also to, to be able to staff it so we are starting a capital campaign uh, information on that cam- campaign will be coming through in the next few months um, but it will be something to look out for and something that if someone is wanting to provide you know sort of direct and immediate assistance this is a perfect way to do that because it will literally be buying beds um, and cool. and staff for people to people who are in need in the, in the community and will that- that be another house in Lawrence. That will be another house in Lawrence. Yes, another, another house in Lawrence. It's approximately the same size as uh, our current, our current uh, property. So you serve Franklin and, and Jefferson County in addition to Douglas County. What are the sort of? Is there a physical location in those two areas? We do have offices in those two areas. Um, they are uh, accessible from the the website. You can get the addresses. I don't know them offhand, That's fine. Um, but uh, they work within the communities to be a resource for folks who need that uh, attend court in those counties um they each do outreach kind of doing presentations and community conversations uh, and they act as sort of a one-person, two-person band who does pretty much everything we we do here in Lawrence with a with a larger staff. They do on their own out there, so they're a, an amazing group of of folks. But rural uh, rural outreach has has quite a few challenges mm-hmm. um, with isolation and distance being major factors right. and people getting access to services. So uh, it's great that we have locations there that people can can go to. Um, additionally, if some is wanting to meet with an advocate but doesn't have access to a phone or internet or is feeling like they can't they would only be safe in a public space we do offer uh on thursdays in the morning uh there are hours at lawrence public library it's a partnership with ourselves in the sexual abuse and trauma care center uh where we 
we take turns week by week. Um, but the advocates there can help people if they if they need to get access to Willow services. And is that a that's a one on one sort of meet with the advocate? That, it's that not like a support group. No, it's a one on one drop in center where okay. people can just come in and and explain what information they'd like to get. And again, it can be information about any aspect of what we do. Um, but they can also arrange for shelter if somebody needs that. So we have had a few people who have not felt safe being able to call or have not felt mm-hmm. safe being able to uh, get to a public place, but they feel like they can get to the library. So it's been utilized a few times and, and a very helpful resource. And yay, Lawrence Public Library for, for providing that. Yeah, they offer a lot of great resources they to, do, to the community for, for a variety of, of crises and, and issues. We did not touch at all on um, human trafficking, and that's probably an entire another, <laughs> yeah. another program. But do you want yeah, to touch on it briefly? Just just to give you kind of a, a brief summary. Yeah, human trafficking um, program. Our program has a, a full time advocate and a part time advocate who work directly with those who have been trafficked. Um, trafficking has a slightly different set of sort of causes and ways in which you work with survivors um, because there are things with, with trafficking, it's often an exploitation for financial gain, either of labor or sex. Um, and so you will sometimes see people who are already, you know, working in the game who are still wanting to do that, but just want to get away from the person who is trafficking them. So there, there can sometimes be a different set of circumstances. And sometimes you can also get recruiting uh, where traffickers will send folks in who are claiming to be survivors but are actually there to recruit other people um so that's that can be make for kind of a difficult situation um but it is you know another thing where we have to kind of continue to work against myths many folks have a the kind of the taken myth where they think it's something where that only happens internationally or only happens to you know citizens of, of other countries people that um, don't speak english people that very don't speak well. english you get picked up by someone at the airport you get you know whisked away and you're you're suddenly three countries away um it doesn't. It, it's much more localized than that, and it's much more organized than that. And we see a lot of it. Kansas City had a recent uh, recent arrest for where about twenty four traffickers were um, were incarcerated, uh, and they got a huge ring of them. And we see a lot of trafficking uh, in and around Kansas City, Lawrence, Topeka, and Wichita because of the kind of central location of right. where we're at, and also the easy availability of major interstate highways. So uh, it is something that happens in our community. It is something that we continue to uh, work with um, both first responders and with those in kind of the hotel industry and uh, those in, you know, sort of stylists, people who are, you know, who kind of come, come in contact with folks who might be Maybe being trafficked. Transient. Yeah. Right. And, and then we also work with directly with survivors and try to help them. So that is a lot. I mean, what the. What the willow does is a lot. Um, you know, in addition to just a safe haven for for a, for a people that are being abused. I mean, all yeah. those other ancillary things you do. Definitely a way that it's 
helping to answer the epidemic or work right. on the epidemic. But that's a, how many staff? Um, we have, have? A, a staff of 30 at the moment. Yeah. And and really our our mission at, at this point is to um, break the cycle of violence uh, and rebuild safer lives. So we consider the, the cycle of violence to be everything from preventative education, letting people know early on, working with the schools, to teach healthy relationships, to teach dating violence, to teach cyberbullying, stalking, and technology, uh, to giving people the words to have the conversations that are difficult about uh, domestic violence and about relationship abuse. Um, to providing shelter and incidents to it where it happens, to providing support in court, which for many folks is the first time they'll see their abusers since they left. Um, it's a very stressful, difficult time for survivors uh, to having for having someone there, um, to providing longer-term transitional housing uh, and services for folks who have been with us for a while but still need that extra bit of help. So, yeah, we view it as a as sort of a, a whole process that we are trying to work with as many angles of as we can, um, but all under the banner of that sort of uh, breaking the cycle of violence and rebuilding safer lives in our communities. If someone were in a community other than Lawrence, Douglas County, Franklin County, or and Jefferson County that you serve, um, if they call your your crisis line and want information about something in, I don't know, Missouri or something, you mm. would be able to provide referral to another domestic violence absolutely center. we've uh we've got a bunch of uh notebooks in our in our call center with uh with information on local regional and national resources right. and it's another thing that you know we, we also have google so that's right. always a good way to kind of look for places um there are many many uh providers there, there are 11 services in in kansas um and there are at least a couple in kansas city they're technically in missouri but that are nearby. Right. Um, so there are often services available in in area in your area, um, and we can help people get to those services. Uh, and if not, there's always the national helpline, which is very good as well. So. Great. Anything else you want to, want uh, to add or address? No, I, I would just I would just kind of reiterate if you don't mind me doing the sure. the, the call center number yeah, plug one more great. time. Yep. Uh, that our twenty four hour call center number is seven eight five eight four three 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 three, and that's always the best place to start with getting information on uh, ourselves and our services or www.willowdvcenter.org. Uh, and people can feel free to kind of give me an email. My address is on there. I'd love to talk about any of this, right. uh, and love to come arrange to give a presentation if. if if anyone would like one. Wonderful. Do you have anything else you want to add? Um, no, no. I think that's pretty good for now. Okay. I think we think we just about covered everything, but thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We've been speaking with Will Averill, Director of Communications for the Willow Domestic Violence Center, and this is our episode of Good Works in the Heartland. The Good Works in the Heartland podcast is a production of the Audio Reader Network.